This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 24. Trust is something that builds over time. And so when you think about trust in teams, there's really three things you have to, that, that are in play. One is there's an ability component. You know, I got to feel like everybody on the team knows what they're doing. They're capable of fulfilling the tasks that they've been assigned. Two, I got to feel that there, there's a benevolence component. Everybody is willing to do the right thing for the team and put their own self-interest off to the side. In three, there's an integrity component, which says, if I tell you I'm going to do something, you're going to get it done. What differentiates high-performing teams from low-performing teams? How can you build highly effective teams that deliver results? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Gordy Curfee. Gordy helps C-suite, business unit, and functional leaders develop business strategies, hire, develop, and promote leadership talent, and most importantly, build high-performing teams. Taking a science practitioner approach to leadership, Gordy has spent the past 30 years researching, teaching, practicing, and providing consulting advice on leadership and team effectiveness. He has written 19 books on leadership and teams, and one of my favorites is his rocket model. Practical advice for building high-performing teams. The Rocket Model is highly pragmatic and is a must-read for HR leaders. As a consultant, he has done over 1,000 executive assessments and worked with over 200 teams. When it comes to leadership and team effectiveness, Gordy's an expert and someone to listen to. I know you're going to enjoy our conversation as we discussed why team leaders are the biggest barriers to effective teamwork and what to do about it, why only 20% of teams are high-performing, why most teams are hybrids that must have individual and collective goals, why the teams with the best talent wins is a fact, not a myth, and how HR leaders can elevate their organization's ability to build high-performing teams and much more. Gordy, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for being on. Yeah, you've been working in the field of executive assessment, leadership development, and team effectiveness for over 30 years. Can you tell us more about your career and how you developed your expertise, particularly in the team effectiveness area? Yeah, well, I really got started in the whole leadership and team area with my time at the Air Force Academy. So I went to the Air Force Academy as an undergraduate and actually played hockey for them. I was one of the captains of the hockey team my senior year. So I was pretty heavily involved with team sports, obviously growing up. Uh, through college. But what was interesting about the academy was it was both an undergraduate undergraduate institution, but it was also very focused on leadership. And so that really did kind of pique my interest. And I was lucky enough to have a, a PhD IO psychologist who was my advisor, very uh, much a leadership guru. I learned a lot from this guy, got me very interested in leadership, and then spent a career in the military with seven of those years back at the academy, either coaching ice hockey or on the faculty, 
leadership and statistics and under, you know, introductory psychology and the various other classes. But, but it was really my time in the military that got me interested in leadership and teams. And then after I got out of the military, I ended up joining a firm called Personnel Decisions International, PDI. It's now part of the Corn Ferry Board as they ended up acquiring all these companies. PDI was one of the companies they acquired. But, you know, what struck me about my time at PDI was that, that we were spending a lot of time doing individual assessments, really looking at what drove leaders, what made them tick, what kind of personality traits did they have, how smart were they, how did they do in different business simulations, what's the 360 data tell us. But the focus on all of that work and really the focus on all the research going on at le around leadership at the time was all on the individual. It was sort of a glorified version of what I call the great man theory. I mean, we were just looking still at the individual leader, and it could be either charismatic leadership or servant leadership or situational leadership, but it was still pretty focused on the individual and what made them up and what allowed them to be effective. And what really struck me after working, you know, 20 years or so on all of this was that everybody forgot that leadership is a team sport. You know, that nowhere in, in any of these leadership models do you see anything about teams. Nowhere in any of the leadership theories. Nowhere in any of the, even the leadership competency model do you see anything about teams. And to me, that was just a huge, huge whiff. And so I started looking at, okay, so what do we know about teams? What's the research tell us? And there was some good work being done by Richard Hackman and a few other folks. But what you found was that the team research was sort of like the leadership research in that it didn't cohere. You had some people looking at the size of the team. You had other people looking at role conflict, role ambiguity. You had people looking at innovation on teams. But there was no kind of model or framework to kind of put all this research together. And a lot of this research was really good, but there was just nothing to put it together. And so the rocket model was almost like big five theory of personality. If you're familiar with the big five theory, mm -hmm. it's not really a model. It just says when you look at all the research, these five factors seem to come out no matter what country you're in. And I think the rocket model components are kind of the same thing. These are the factors that seem to be most important when it comes to driving teamwork. So we started developing the model about 20 years ago and uh, collected data on about 3,000 teams from around the globe. And unlike a lot of other research, these are actual real teams, teams doing real work. They're not a bunch of college students working on some sort of fictitious project for, a, for an hour, and therefore we're going to find get all kinds of insights about teamwork. These were all teams doing real work from all across the globe and looked at that data and used that data to refine our approach, to refine the model three four times now. So we learn as we go, as we keep doing work, we continue to refine, continue to update. But to me now, we still do a lot of work in the individual space. So I, we still do a lot of individual assessments. We'd still do a lot of executive coaching. I do a lot of executive onboarding, but we oftentimes pull teams into that whole discussion. So not only do we look at an individual in terms of their personality and mental abilities and how they're seen by other people in terms of 360s or how they do on business simulations. But we also look to see what kind of teams they can build. Can these folks actually build teams? Because many times they're getting hired to fill some sort of significant leadership role that involves a team. They're not going to do it by themselves. You hit another point, Gordy, that 
you know, for me, it just, it strikes me the same way that we spend so much of our time and teams doing work on project teams, cross-functional teams, executive teams, almost no time on training leaders on how to actually build and lead high-performing teams. And I'm wondering, why is that from your perspective? Well, there's three or four reasons for that, I think, JP. So probably the biggest barrier to effective teamwork in organizations are team leaders. <laughs> what do I mean by that? One of, the, one of the consistent research findings we get from the team assessment survey, which is our measure of, of team, team dynamics and performance, is that leaders are gross overraters of team performance. You know, so what the research tells us is that one out of five teams are high performing. That's Hackman's research. That's some Corn Ferry research. That's our research. You know, one out of five teams are really hitting on all cylinders and doing well. 80% need work. So some of them need a little bit of tweaking. Some of them need some tweaking. Some are pretty dysfunctional. I guarantee you, I get 20 people in a room and I say that, all right, 16 of you are leading teams that need help. Everyone there is looking at the other people in the room thinking, I got the high-performing team. It's the rest of you bastards that don't. So you know, to me, there's this big, big misunderstanding or this big gap in that, you know, leaders don't necessarily get trained because they don't think they need training. They think they're already good at it. And we don't provide leaders with any feedback to tell them, you know what, maybe you're not as good as you think. So I think that's one big reason. So I think team leaders are a big reason. I, I think another reason things happen is, you know, the coin of the realm for most talent management systems is the leadership competency model. Now, competency models come and go, and sometimes they get more popular or less popular. But by and large, most organizations have said, okay, here's the things we want our leaders to be able to do. And usually it's in the set of attributes or competencies or skills or something like that. 95% of those competencies don't, the competency models say nothing about building high performing teams. They don't. Mm -hmm. And as Peter Drucker uh, famously said about 30 years ago, if you don't measure it, you don't manage it. And I think that's absolutely true. So, so because teams aren't featured in a leadership competency model, we don't select for it. We don't build structured interview questions around it. We don't build hiring systems around it. We don't develop it. We don't uh, evaluate it. We don't uh, reward it. We don't uh, look at it in terms of promotion. So to me, if you really want to start inculcating teams across organizations in scale effective teamwork, because I think that's really what the question is. How do you scale effective teamwork? It's not how do you work with one team at a time? How do you take a large organization? Like I worked uh, yesterday, I was working with Red Bull. I'll be working with Johnson & Johnson in a couple of weeks. How do you take large organizations like that and effectively scale teamwork? they got thousands of teams. You can't work with one team at a time. you got to do something around scaling effective teamwork. And the place you get started is the company's talent management systems. So you talked about scaling teams, and that really is kind of the holy grail, but most organizations are not building capability to do that. One, I don't see them even having a model typically of how what effective teamwork is. Two, to your point, which I think is really smart and astute, a lot of managers say, well, why do I need this? I know how to build teams. I know how to run a meeting. You know, this is too elementary for us. You're seeing those two areas happen more often than not, Gordy, right? They're slowing this down and 
impacting why we don't have more effective leadership around teams. Well, JP, I think all of that's exactly right. And I think the other thing is there's just this really misguided understanding of what team building is. I mean, most of the time when somebody recognizes, oh, I'd like to do some team building, let's go do a two or three hour ropes course in the afternoon. Let's go out and do a golf outing. Now, those things are fun and they can help teams. Don't, don't get me wrong, but they typically don't get at what's actually going on with the team, what the, what the team issues really are. And, and because they don't get at it, they really, whatever palliative effects they have, it's going to be temporary. Uh, so I think we have misguided notions about what team building is. Leaders overestimate their team building ability. A big one is we do not provide leaders with feedback on, or particularly benchmarking feedback in terms of, okay, how does your team compare to all the other teams? And our talent management systems are all, all indexed towards the individual and say nothing about teams. So those are all different reasons. And then the other thing I would say is teams are sort of the redheaded stepchild in organization. I go to an HR department, they'll say, okay, so who's in charge of cop? All right. Who's in charge of talent acquisition? Got it. Who's in charge of leadership development? Who's in charge of learning? Got it. Got it. Got it. You got all these centers of excellence out. Who's in charge of teams? Well, I don't know. Nobody. The, the managers, right? That's what they'll say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the managers or something like that. But, but I mean, there, there isn't that sort of central COE that right. says, you know what, we've got somebody in charge of teams. And like you said, I mean, you articulated it really well. Companies haven't adopted some sort of common team framework. So you get 20 leaders in a room, they're going to have 20 different ideas about how to build a high-performing team. But if we said we're going to do organizational design... There's probably someone who owns organizational design, whether it's a talent person or an OD person in combination or even a business partner with that business leader. But when you say team effectiveness, you're right. It's no one owns it. And everyone sort of points and looks and says, oh, I thought you had that, right? The other thing is, I think there's misnotions about what is a team. And so if you can talk more about who is and what is not a team and how do you define that in the conditions that actually make something or someone group a team. Well, you know, the definition of one definition of teams is it's a collection of people putting forth effort towards the achievement of a common goal, if you want the academic definition. But I think there's a really big distinction between groups and teams. And it's one that I think people confuse and it causes lots of problems. I think the way to think about this, JP, is think about like the women's U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, the women's gymnastics team in the women's Olympic soccer team, mm -hmm. all right? One is a group and the other one is a team. And so groups are collections of people. They, people on a group have individual goals. Um, what they do has very little impact on anybody else and they get rewarded uh, based upon their individual efforts. If there is a team goal, team goal or team reward, it's just a roll up of their individual results. So if you think about the women's gymnastics team, you know, what Simone Biles does on the floor exercise has no bearing or impact on anybody else. Uh, and then at the end of the day, she's going to get a medal or not medal based upon her individual performance. All the team meddling is all about is just the addition of everybody's individual scores. There are many, many sales teams and there are many, many talent acquisition teams, for example, that are really groups rather than teams mm -hmm. where people have very clear individual goals. What one person does has no bearing on anybody else and they get rewarded 
based upon their individual accomplishments. It's a very effective way of organizing work, depending upon the nature of the work that's got to be performed. So it's, it's really, it works really well, but that's a group. And the leadership demands for that are really different. So the leadership demands for a group is really much what I call a hub and spoke. You know, I got to work with each person individually. I'm the coordinating function. I got to make sure each person's got individual goals. They've got the individual resources. I'm coaching them individually. If I, it's a sales team, I'm doing ride-alongs. I'm providing them with the resources they need to succeed. I'm spending very little time getting them together and getting them to know each other and doing touchy-feely exercises so they all get along well. If I'm doing that, it's going to drive the people, the high performers on the on that team nuts because they'd rather be out making money. Mm-hmm. That's really different than a team. A team has got a collective goal, which is to win the game. Um, what one person does on the pitch, what one person does in the ice and the field affects everybody else. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what, how people do individually, collectively, do we win or lose? That's all that matters. That is really different. And the leadership responsibilities, the selection that needs to happen, how you run your meetings, all of that's really different. And what you find is that from, you know, our research has showed, shows is that most collections of people are hybrids. They have elements and they have, of group and they have elements of team. There are individual goals and collective goals. They do some things fine by themselves. There are other things they have to coordinate with everybody else. And in, in rewards could be a, some mix of individual and collective accomplishments. And what we find, and this is particularly true with top teams, you know, the, the C-suite teams and business unit leadership teams. One of the big issues that these teams confront is when do we operate as a group and when do we operate as a team? And there are certain issues that cut across everybody. And so it's like, you know what? We all have to be aligned on this. We all have to be singing from the same sheet of music. We are going to weigh in on this. And this is how we're going to work together in terms of accomplishing these outcomes or driving these initiatives. These other ones, you know, it's okay, JP, if you and somebody else run off and do this. It's okay if these two people do this, or it's okay if this person do this. The rest of us should not get involved with that. As a matter of fact, if we all get involved, it's going to ball things up. Right. And what we know about, what we know about particularly teams, senior teams, is that they're, they're full of alpha males and alpha females. And so they, they suffer from this malady we call alpha paralysis, where I don't care how irrelevant the topic is to my background or my function, by God, I'm going to weigh in. With senior teams, you really have to try to minimize that. The way you can do that is by spending some time articulating, yeah, these are group issues. These are things you should handle by yourself. Keep us informed what you're doing, but we're not all going to weigh in. These are team issues where we all have to be singing from the same sheet of music. Yeah, and do you find the more that the executive teams are weighing on each other's conversations and decisions, that the more dysfunctional that team is and the slower decision-making and the impact to the business? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's been my experience. And I think, and I really love the way you kind of set this out because I asked the question purposely and you went right where I was going, top teams and business unit teams. Where a lot of times HR leaders are trying to help support and we get a little confused thinking that they're a team, sort of like a soccer team, when mm-hmm. they're actually kind of a hybrid. But yep. no one's really defined those roles. And so a lot of it, it's who's got the D and decision here, right? And why is the marketing person telling me with the HR person what we should do for compensation? It's like, well, hey, that's not your decision, right? 
Uh, yeah, and so that can matter, really cause some challenges. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, you may not even, we may not even want you to weigh in. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, and so it's just clarifying who should be involved with what decisions and who, like you said, who's got the D. Yeah, who's got the D. Do you find that when you talk to executive teams and start to lay out this model and say, hey, you're a group and you're a team, but it's a hybrid, does it resonate? Or do they say, well, no, we're really a team. They resist the idea of thinking of themselves as a group, you know, more of a gymnastics team. No, it ends up, I think it ends up being a huge clarifying moment for a lot of teams. You know, now they finally get it. It's like, man, I, you know, I have had all these people weighing in on these issues that really don't know what the hell they're talking about. They think they're adding value, but in reality, they're not. And they're, those folks are feeling the same thing about their stuff that we're all weighing in on. And so in some sense, it's empowering and liberating because we're giving people permission about it's okay to run these things by yourself and just keep, you know, you know, where the organization is going, you have a pretty good idea what the guardrails are, what the strategic imperatives are, you know, stay within them. Don't, don't go rogue on us, but keep us informed in terms of what you're doing. That is helpful. The other thing I want to come back to on this, Gordon, your perspective is I've not seen an organization that is actually doing performance management on a team basis. What do you think organizations should be doing to try to reward the right team behavior? Is there things that you've seen or people should be trying that we're not doing today? Well, I have seen a couple of organizations who have moved in that direction where they're still keeping individual goals, but there are also collective goals that, that are being used to determine compensation and bonus decisions. Boy, I tell you what, folks didn't like it at first, you know, because they have a little less control. They got to play nice with each other and they have to trust each other. But, but, um, I think it's, I think it's really important. Stephen Kerr had, a, he used to be the chief learning officer for Goldman Sachs and, and GE. Mm-hmm. And he had a great classic paper wrote, written in the early eighties, mid eighties about the folly of rewarding A while hoping for B. And I think that's true about our compensation system where every organization wants teamwork, hopes for teamwork and rewards nothing but individual effort. Right. I think organizations who really want team and they're actually, their business objectives demand teams need to think more seriously about the reward systems. You know, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree so, more. To Gordy, next I want to have a little bit of fun with you in a section I called fact, fad, and fiction. So what is one fact about team effectiveness, one fad, and then one fiction about team effectiveness? One, one fact is I think teams with the best talent win. We always love the underdog. We always love watching these movies like Hoosiers, you know, which is a great movie, you know, where, where here's this underdog team coming out of nowhere and, and you know, beating the competition, win, winning a miracle on ice. That's super rare. That's super rare. The reality is, is teams with the best talent win. And this is why the NFL, the NBA, uh, any professional sports team obsesses over their talent decisions. Because they know that. The coaches help, but boy, you look at college recruits, recruiting, it's all in the recruiting. So teams with the best talent win. That is a fact. Um, uh, fads, a couple of fads. There's a, there's a longer-term fad and there's a more near-term fad. One fad I find is, is, is persona- using personality to understand teams. I, I think, you know, usually, you know, what happens here, JP, is, you know, we've got 10 people on a team. We all take the DISC, we all take the MBTI, we all take the Hogan, we take some sort of personality measure. We're going to aggregate results 
And then uh, based upon that, we can make all kinds of proclamations about a team. Complete and utter bullshit. Um, um, you know, the problem is those measures are really designed to look at how people differ individually. They're individual difference measures. And they can be really good measures. They can be very effective. I mean, I take, I make big use of them in my individual, my leadership assessment work and our leadership development work. So I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that stuff. But I think when you start pulling some instruments together and say, okay, here is like, if you look at the Hogan suite, you got 37 traits. You got 37 traits. You got 10 people on the team. Good luck keeping 370 combinations in the forefront of your mind. And so I think if you've done any kind of leadership assessment work, what you know is you really want is it's nice to have the personality stuff with the 360 stuff because you can kind of compare and contrast the two. And many times that personality ratings really have some bearing in terms of what's going on in the 360 and can provide some underlying rationale in terms of, well, you know, this is why this person's scoring this way on these instruments because of some of this personality stuff going on. Really helpful. I think it's the same with teams. Having some of that aggregate personality stuff might help, can help us understand why a team may be acting a certain way. But the aggregate results really don't tell us anything about whether a team is really doing that or not. Okay, they've got all kinds of stuff going on, say, on their dark side personality traits. Is the team really acting that way? I don't know. You got to get some other data to find out. So I think that's a longer term fad that's been around for a long time. And I think as much of that is, has to do with just marketing on the personality vendors as anything else. Here's another use for our test. I don't think it's that helpful. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but I just, I don't think it's that helpful. I think the more recent fad is anything with neuro in front of it. Mm. You know, yeah, I just saw there was a podcast uh, or some sort of webinar last week on neuro teams or some bullshit like that. And I'm going, okay, great. I can't wait to hear what this thing is all about. Teams are super complicated. So how are they going to, how that just takes as complicated personality as with teams. Let's ratchet it up a couple more levels of complexity and then try yeah. to make some meaningful conclusions about what you're supposed to do on a very practical level with teams. Yeah. If we don't even understand basic science or even someone's personality, how are we going to understand the neuroscience of our teams? I mean, it's a little bit of a stretch on that one for sure, but I'm guilty. I have letter facilitated based teams on the personality assessments, the Hogan in particular. Mm -hmm. And I think it is unsatisfying. Like, I don't think I got to the right end game. I think people got to know each other a little bit better and they kind of rationalize maybe why someone behaves a certain way, right? Oh, you're more process oriented. You're this way, but it does nothing on how we're going to work better together to get results done. And that was like, I would have to do in a whole nother session where I went back with the strategy and we started to talk about roles and really get into what I think team effectiveness is all about. So I think you're totally right. Uh, there's a lot of people out there selling that or hoping that doing through a disc is going to solve a team issue. And it's just not. What about a fiction about team effectiveness? I think a fiction, JP, is trust. If you look at Lencioni's model, it's like, look, if you don't trust, if you don't have trust, you don't pass go, you don't collect $200. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's true. I, I certainly don't think it's true the way they position it. Like, uh, first thing we got to do is trust each other. And so we're going to share our MBTI results. Therefore, we'll trust each other. And therefore, we can do good work. It's like bullshit. You know, it's. That's not going to happen. Trust is something that builds over time. 
And so when you think about trust in teams, there's really three things you have to, that, that are in play. One is there's an ability component. You know, I got to feel like everybody on the team knows what they're doing. They're capable of fulfilling the tasks that they've been assigned. Two, I got to feel that there, there's a benevolence component. Everybody is willing to do the right thing for the team and put their own self-interest off to the side. And three, there's an integrity component, which says, if I tell you I'm going to do something, you're going to get it done, or I'm going to get it done. It means I'm going to safeguard confidential information. It means I'm going to abide by the rules. Those three pieces, ability, benevolence, integrity, that takes time. That takes time. That takes reps. That takes sessions in the foxhole together where we're just getting work done. The more we work together, the more I'm going to be able to see, yeah, you really know what you're doing or, yeah, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to take the hit for the team. I appreciate that. And you are going to follow through with your commitment. So I think, don't get me wrong, trust is important to teams. I just think the way we think about it and, and think about that, it's, uh, it's an input variable as opposed to a mediating variable, something that develops over time is just very wrongheaded. I would also add consistency. Are you consistent? Are you consistently delivering, showing up? Because at some point, we don't want people who are erratic on teams. We want people who are like, yep, I'll get it there for you. And they deliver. And we get to know the personalities and we trust that they are someone who's going to be consistent in their approach on how we work together. Because at some point in a team, you really are putting a lot of, of trust or faith in someone else because I'm handing that baton off to you and you're going to bring it back to me, right? And that just takes time. To your point, you're not going to just trust someone overnight. And it does take oh, more time than people think. I think that the consistency notion that you just said is bang on. And it, it, it just, it does take time. My next question is around your team effectiveness model, but there are a lot of different models on team effectiveness. We will not bash any other models, but tell us more about the rocket model, what differentiates your approach maybe from what else is on the market. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is we really did try to do our homework. So it's really based upon what's the research tell us about teams. That was the place where we got started. The second piece was is around then looking at the literature and putting straw man model together and then just collecting data and refining it over time, but using it with real teams doing real work, not any kind of lab stuff going on in, in, in college students. And the third thing is, is trying to make things really pragmatic. There are several models out there that are quite good, but they're just so damn academic. You can't make sense of it. You know, this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs sort of thing. I look at some of the diagrams behind it. It's like, there's just, I can't make sense of this thing. The last thing I think that's really important is the model works, you know, pretty well with groups as well as teams. And we do make that distinction. You know, as a matter of fact, in our team assessment survey, we provide feedback to the teams in terms of where they fall on a group versus team continuum. Are you really a group? Are you a hybrid? Are you a team? But the model works in all three of those types of teams. So, you know, that's, you know, the research base based upon real te teams that do real work, the group versus team kind of distinction, the prag pragmatism behind it. I think those are some of the real differentiators for it. That's really helpful. And in the rocket model, you lay out eight critical questions that every team must answer. We don't need to go through all eight, but maybe talk to us more about some of the questions that, are, that teams should be asking themselves each day to be more effective. Big one here in the last couple of years, JP, is just about what's the situation facing the team. What's really interesting in terms of, if you look at almost all other team models, they say nothing about the situation. And I think the situation in which team operates has a huge impact on what teams can do. 
And so our first dimension when it comes to the rocket model is called context, because we think, hey, look, at context is really important in terms of how successful or what you can do or what your plans need to entail. So we try to spend a bunch of time, you know, having everybody do for essentially a Vulcan mind meld. If we get done with our discussion, we're all looking at things exactly the same way. The videotapes playing in our head about the situation is the same. Because if we don't have that conversation, I guarantee you people are going to be thinking about the situation differently and will act accordingly. So one of the things that's really important is, are we on the same page about the situation and the challenges facing the team? Mission is also another important component to the rocket model. And this is all about what's the purpose of this team? And maybe another slight variation of that, very important is, how does this team add value? I mean, many times when I work with senior leadership teams, we have a discussion about, okay, so what's unique to you guys? How do you guys add value over and above everybody else? And help them think through what sort of things should they be working on then that can't be done anywhere else in the organization. Talent, what's really interesting about the talent component is most people, when they think about talent on a team, they think about the skills and abilities of the people on the team. And that's, a, that's an important consideration. As I said earlier, teams with the best talent win. But that's only one of six talent considerations on a team. Hmm. Another, a big one is a team size. And I have seen, I work with senior teams running $20 billion P&Ls with 27 people on it. And it was just a cluster. <laughs> you know, you couldn't get anything done. Because they do a team meeting once their quarter and everybody felt they had to have their half hour to give everybody up to speed on what was happening. And so by the second or third presentation, everybody was taking pencils and jabbing their eyes up because they were bored. There was no discussion whatsoever. So team size is a big deal. Reporting structure is a big deal. Matrixed organizations kill teamwork. Hmm. Uh, Say more about that. Say more about Well, that. you know, it has to do with Patrick Lencioni said about first team loyalty. Is, is my first team, this team here, or my direct line reporting relationship back to my leader? I've seen that over and over again where, where everybody says, well, we want to build a high-performing team, but at the end of the day, somebody else is writing my performance review and giving me my bonus. Again, the folly of hoping for A while rewarding B. And there are other talent considerations too, but those are some big ones. Those are some those are big, big ones. ones. Yeah. So really, what is the context? So important. And that context has shifted so rapidly over the last 12 to 18 yeah. months, especially if you're in tech, right? The context is shifting every day in terms of now we're, we're now doing layoffs instead of mass hiring and hiring sprees, right? The interest is gone as we move into a potentially uncertain and economic environment the next 12 months or so. That's really important for the, the team to understand what they're facing. Obviously, the mission, the purpose, what values that team bringing. And then what's the talent component in terms of size, scope, other pieces around who's really coming to the table on that team that's critical. Gordy, what about the work? You know, you've seen a lot of common challenges teams face. Um, what are those common challenges and how do you recommend some teams overcome them? Common challenges. Well, I think one common challenge is, is really around getting everybody aligned on the situation. That was just part of the context conversation we just had. Because leaders falsely assume that everybody's looking at the situation the same way they are. And, and what ends up happening on a team, JP, is everybody's got unique information about customers, about suppliers, about the economic environment, about the political environment. 
And what you're trying to do there is really get everybody on this. Let's get all that information out and figure out, okay, here's the assumptions we're going to be making over the next year based upon all the information that we've gathered. I know some companies like in product development on the healthcare side, like Medtronic does it. Medtronic thinks the context is so important. They will spend two days on context before they even think about launching a new product. Hmm. Two whole days. That's great. You know, most organizations don't spend any time on context. Right. It's like taken for granted, right? They take it for granted. You saw our P&L, you know, you saw our Q1 results, right? Let's move forward. Yeah. But what you're saying is that someone might be thinking that we're in better shape than we are, or they might have different assumptions going in that then change their behavior further downstream that actually impacts the team. So people aren't fully aligned is the key piece there, is making sure everyone sees the world the same way. It's really critical. Yeah, I think another common challenge facing teams is when do we operate as a group versus when do we operate as a team? Like we talked about earlier, JP, most collections of people are hybrids. They have elements of group and team in them. So clarifying when they do what is is critically important. Uh, We didn't talk much about the norms component, but that usually is an area ripe for improvement with a team. Most teams run lousy meetings. They just do. There's too many meetings. There's the time used in those meetings is not very efficient or effective. Decision-making is hugely problematic on teams. You've got the wrong people involved. We don't have the right decision owner. So those are all common issues we see with teams. What about from HR perspective, how can they do more to support the development of high-performing teams? If you're going to give some advice to next-generation HR leaders in general, what can we do? to be better at building high-performance teams in our organizations? My flippant answer is just do something. (laughs) You're not doing much of anything. Uh, I mean, that's that's my flippant answer. But the reality is I would take a step back. And Dick Sporting Goods did this. And I got to give them full credit um, because they do have a leadership competency model where building high-performing teams is called out. It's one of the key competencies they're trying to drive, which... I was absolutely delighted, but that's really rare. So one of the things I would do if I was an HR leader is I would build the leadership competency model that includes building high, the ability or the skills necessary to build a high-performing team. Start there. Then you have to adopt a common team model. So what's the model for teamwork? You go to Red Bull. Everybody talks about the rocket model. The rocket model is just uh, the coin of the realm there when it comes to team. Uh, you know, most organizations don't have that, whether it's the rocket model, Lencioni models, or something else. It's just, there's a proliferation of models. There's not a lot of uh, uptake to, to whatever models they've got. So come up with a model and stick to it. Then you've got to give leaders feedback. It's one thing to have a model. It's a whole other thing to come to leaders and say, all right, we are going to start assessing you, you folks, and giving you feedback on how you're doing with teams. And then you got to train them. Okay, you give people feedback. Okay, their teams aren't very good or their teams are okay but could be better. You've got to be able to train them to look at that feedback and then do something with it. Cody, great advice, really helpful roadmap for HR leaders to think differently about how they build high-performing teams. Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR in the next five to 10 years? 
Well, if it comes to teams, I'm hoping it's that leadership is a team sport. That would be the phrase that we move away from just looking at the individual and start really looking at the team because teams are the fundamental unit analysis when it comes to getting work done. It's not the individual. It's actually the team. Absolutely. Leadership's a team sport. Gordon, thank you so much for your time and the future of HR. We learned a lot today about team effectiveness. Hope you come back and maybe even go a little bit deeper next time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Gordy for sharing his insights on team effectiveness and why leadership is a team sport. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with the one and only Dave Ulrich, who is considered to be the father of modern HR and whose list of accomplishments and contributions to our field is almost too much to count. In our conversation, Dave and I have flipped the script a little bit as we crowdsource the questions for our conversation from LinkedIn. And I don't want to ruin the surprise of what I asked Dave and his insightful responses, but all I can say is you will not be disappointed. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.